Welcome to Outspoken, a podcast for social change, where we talk about current events and how they relate to interpersonal violence and abuse. Outspoken is a project of the Hayes Caldwell Women's Center located in San Marcos, Texas. If you or someone you know has experienced abuse and is seeking support, services, or needs more information, links to resources can be found in our episode description. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and guests and do not reflect the views of their organizations or affiliates. Welcome to Outspoken, a podcast for social change. I'm Kirsten, and October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, which is a national effort to raise awareness about the impacts of domestic violence and encourage communities to support survivors of abuse. Though these conversations are important to have year-round, October gives us the opportunity to shine a light on relationship abuse and inspire conversations to create change. I want to give a content warning for this episode. We will be discussing domestic violence and abuse in relationships. So today, we have two special guests joining us. I'm so excited we're going to be able to have another interview. Uh, I'm going to let you both introduce yourselves. Uh, My name is Melanie, and I'm a residential counselor here for HCWC. Um, I started a little over a year ago, and um, I actually started a long time ago. I did seven months of internship under another counselor here while I was working on my graduate program um, and just fell in love with it. And as soon as there was an opportunity, um, I jumped right in. I I am also actually from the area, uh, just a little bit out of town. I raised two teenage girls. Um, I find a lot of joy in what I do for a living. I find a lot of, um, peace and, and happiness. And I really feel like, um, I'm doing the best that I can to leave this place better than I, than I came to it. And, um, I'm glad to be here with you guys today. Hello, my name is Diana and I'm the legal advocate at the shelter here at HCWC. I have the honor and the privilege of, uh, being here with Melanie, and we started together a year ago uh, working mm-hmm. here at, at the shelter. That's true. <laughs> um, I'm not from the area. I'm originally from uh, Del Rio, Texas, which is border with, with Mexico, but I moved uh, to this area when I met my or started dating my now husband, and, and I really enjoy uh, the, the job I do here at HCWC. Awesome. Thank you for both introducing yourselves and thank you for both being willing to be interviewed on this episode. I know that our community is going to get a lot out of the knowledge and expertise, the experience that you both have. So thanks. I'm really excited to have you both here. Um, So what is your job and who do you serve at HCWC? Uh, Well, for me, um, I am the residential counselor here at the shelter. I work with Deanna, but I am the children's residential counselor. Um, So I serve our youth up until about 18, 19, kind of depending on what our director feels is a good personality. You know, sometimes it's a little older, depending on what she feels like is a good personality match for me. Um, So what I provide is immediate crisis intervention, trauma intervention. I'm the first person that they're seeing when they come in here. Um, to the shelter. And not only is what obviously they've been through and moving to the shelter is a huge shock. Being in the shelter can be shocking and there's lots of people and people are on all different kinds of paths here. And so I specialize in play therapy and sand tray therapy with crisis intervention as a therapeutic process. 
it does really well with younger kids and being able to work out things that maybe they can't say out loud. And I am completely supported in this endeavor. Um, my director, Desiree, sends me to most conferences that I ask to go to <laughs> and, um, you know, to just really broaden my horizon. So I have always worked in residential treatment with adolescents. I have never worked on this side of it. So I have learned a lot in the past 17 months, I guess it is. And I really enjoy it. And of course, I, I meet with parents too. And then we do what we call a parent consultation. And, and if they choose to have their children see me, um, we kind of go from there and set up a plan from there. I am the bilingual caseworker, the legal advocate at the shelter. So my job involves providing, you know, the clients here at the shelter and finding employment, applying for jobs, maybe even tailoring a resume, you know, helping them find uh, housing for themselves, daycare if they have kids and, and you know, they need to, to put them in daycare so that they can, you know, uh, pick up a job. In regards to the legal aspect of it, you know, I point them in the right direction, whether they need to file, want to file a protective order, file, you know, a petition for divorce, uh, in regards to child support, child custody, you know, in, in short, any assistance that they may need to be able to be self-sufficient and, and you know, back on, on, on their feed with their, with their children, that's where I come in. Both of you guys are doing really important work, and I feel like there are maybe some misconceptions about what it looks like at shelter. Can you can you all give us a little bit more information about what shelter is? Well, for us, we actually have um, it's actually a very lovely place. It looks like a home, um, and there is a misconception when people call in or I'm taking someone in. They have lots of questions. They picture a shelter being something from a movie. Um, Ours is very well decorated, very warm and inviting. Everyone has, um, families have their own room, their own private bath, their own TV. The only thing we share community-wise is the living room um, and and the kitchen and dining area. So it's not what I imagine I have a lot of people asking me, is it cots all in one big room, you know, something like that. And it isn't at all. Um, and we work, I'm going on what Diana was just saying, it's we really work to meet um clients where they're at. Um, like I said earlier, everybody's on a different journey. And so sometimes a lot of that happens with the reassurance when we're taking someone in the phone and explaining to them um, that, you know, that they do have a space here, that they do, you know, that there is privacy, that they are, you know, they are valued, they are being seen, they are being heard. Um, and we try to accommodate that as best that we can. And I think uh, another misconception is I am assuming uh, that sometimes it's out there that it is a shelter and, you know, the misconception of the 30 day, we are a 30 day shelter. And sometimes they become overwhelmed because they say 30 days is not enough time, you know, for us to be able to do something. Yeah. Um but then they feel empowered when they realize that, you know, they can really make that time count here at shelter. Sometimes that is a misconception as well as the time frame. But uh, we are a 30 day, you know, uh, emergency shelter. Is there any hesitation for clients when they come into shelter? So somebody who maybe hasn't seen a counselor before or is um, some people may be hesitant to just ask for help and and really understand what that looks like. Do you guys have any barriers with that with clients? 
I do, um, personally, and it seems like the past six months that has been occurring a lot. Um, a lot of times when you're coming in from a, you know, abusive situation or any kind of trauma situation, it is, we've learned to be quiet about things and to protect the abuser, protect the family, everything is fine. And so a lot of times parents and children are still in that mindset when they come in and I have to, with crisis intervention therapy, you are building a rapport very rapidly because I'm trying to get in as soon as I can. And sometimes the adults are very leery of their kids interacting with anyone that isn't with them. Sure. You know, if, if they're not present and, and it is as a child advocate, I have to let the parents know during that parent consultation that anything the child says to me is confidential, you know, unless there is a concern for their safety or something has happened, which outcries have happened and, and we have to make reports. And usually I talk about that um, first and, and try to empower the parent by doing it with me. Um, letting them have some kind of um, to get back control of their lives. But it is, I am, I have a little trick of my sleeve and I shouldn't say trick, (laughs) but I have, um, we use divine canines and I have, I have a therapy dog that comes in every other Wednesday and sometimes, you know, and now I'm taking the families as a session. And so we do a session with um, the whole family in there and me and the, and the trainer. And a lot of times that is my, point of contact that a lot of times that is where I can um, get to know the family, get to know the kiddos um, and start building that trust. Um, Usually from there, um, our dog, Holly, uh, usually opens the door for me and it's just been really great. Um, It it helps the kids engage with me. It helps mom or dad engage with me. And she is just a wonderful resource. And we're really lucky that HEWC supports that process because I have found it to be invaluable. I, I know that um, the previous dog, I think he retired. It wasn't his name, Bonkers. It was Bonkers, and I loved Bonkers. He retired, yes. <laughs> I heard a lot of great things about him, and I know that he was nominated as like one of our volunteer of the month or something like that. Bonkers carried a lot of weight, and he didn't even know it. People <laughs> counted on him to come, and, and Holly's kind of starting to take that place. But yeah, they every day they come in after school asking me if the dog is here, is the dog here, and Oh, that's amazing. I I bet too for because I know our shelter we do not accept animals unless it's a, a service animal, from my yes. understanding. Yes. So I I would imagine that it brings a sense of those families that are used to being around maybe their pets at home kind of creates a sense of like that homey feeling too. Having a pet around can be I would imagine very comforting. Well, yeah, it is, and we have lots of hugging, and even with adults. Um, our adult counselor here will sometimes use, if I have time left, she'll have that are single um, people coming in. And sometimes that, you know, she's able to use that as a breakthrough as well. So we really try to divide the time up where everybody gets, you know, some time. Um, A lot of times, you know, they'll say, hi, they're very polite. They're not necessarily engaged with you. And then as soon as they're hugging bonkers or they're hugging Holly, you know, the tears start and, and yeah. you can, you know, and you can be there with them and support them and, and start building that rapport where they reach out and let you um, help them, let you offer support. And yeah. I, I get why that's completely difficult, but that's all we really want to do is we want to help you and meet you where you're at, wherever we can. We don't have all the answers. I can't promise it's always going to be okay, um, but I will do everything I can to make this moment the best that it can be for them. So, yeah. 
Unfortunately, I feel like there people when they come into shelter, their interactions, whether it's the the first time they call or coming to see both of you, um, maybe for a lot of people the first time that they've ever really been believed or validated mm-hmm. or listened to, and their experiences, you know, I what happened to you is not okay, and everything yeah. you know that you went through was is wrong, and um, and there you're is not hope crazy. and all those things. Yeah, you're not, you're not yeah, crazy. Exactly. You're not overreacting. Absolutely. Yeah. And unfortunately, statistically, it says statistically that it takes seven times of leaving someone for it to actually work. Of course, we have people that leave one time. We have people that come and, you know, and go back and then come back. There's yeah. no judgment. It's it's their yeah. process. It's their personal journey. And like I said, we're just here to meet them where they are and support that. A lot of times we have people that are feel very shameful when they come back the second time and they avoid counseling or they avoid, you know, engaging in Diana's services because they're embarrassed. And, and there really is nothing to be embarrassed about. It takes so much to pick up that phone and call for help. I mean, the hardest part has just happened. So, um, yeah, it's, 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 um, it's a difficult process and you, you just want to, uh, constantly encourage them that it's okay. And it's no judgment for me, whatever your process is going to be, I'm here with you. And, um, I know Deanna uh, deals with that a lot more. Unfortunately, there's not many of us at the shelter. Um, yeah. And so we kind of, I mean, I am the children's counselor, but I, you know, we also jump in and, you know, cover every base that we can. So we have to cover each other's jobs a lot um, in, in offering support because there's only, you know, a handful of us here. So I think, I think um, Deanna does a lot. Deanna is with the legal and the advocacy and um, she's kind of the first point of contact. And so if I go to Deanna and ask her and and I can see where someone's at and when it's appropriate to try to engage them, of course, I try to introduce myself immediately um, within the first day when I come in. But um, Deanna can usually get a good head, give me a good heads up on, you know, what the what the vibe is and, you know, what direction to come in from with with these parents. But she's her job is absolutely vital. They can choose not to see me. She's really the one that um, has to be supportive on every, you know, on taking each and every step um, yeah. each day to get up and function. So she she's a big deal. She doesn't like to say she is, but her job is a big deal. <laughs> and 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 that's where um, that that's where you know the. I don't know if it's called the misconception of it is, but, you know, sometimes the survivors come in and, and they right away, they know that they have to get housing and, and, you know, and be out there, you know, for their job and everything for their, for their kids. But, you know, as soon as they walk in, they just took a, a big decision in their life sure. and, and their trauma is there. And, you know, it, it, they come in and they just break down in my office. And, and that's yeah. where I tell them that, you know, they need to see the counselor because it's so important. They have so much pain, so much hurt inside of them that, you know, we well, we will take care of the housing and everything else, but we got to take care of you too. You know, and sometimes they want to do it the other way around. They want to take care of out here, but I honestly feel that once they take care of themselves, you know, that self-care, then everything else will fall into place. Yes, yeah, that's huge. And I, I would imagine that's probably one of the first times somebody has told them you need to take care of yourself too. Yes. Which is incredible. Yeah, that's huge. They're very lucky to have both of you there oh, over at Shelter. Um, so I want to get into a little bit about what abuse is. Speaking of misconceptions, I feel like there are a lot of misconceptions Absolutely. and myths around what abuse is. And I, I know when I briefly worked at the shelter, sometimes people would call and say something like, well, he doesn't 
hit me, so I know it's not really abuse. Um, so there's sometimes this idea that abuse only means um, physical violence. So would y'all mind um, talking about that a little bit more and what counts as abuse? I think that, and I think it's important to know um, that Hayes Caldwell Women's Center isn't just for women. We yeah. serve anyone that is a, um, a victim of abuse, and that is a misconception. We have yeah. uh, we have had men in our facility. Um, we we don't deny um, anybody on the basis of gender or anything like that. Abuse abuse doesn't just happen with um, a partner. It yeah. can be coming from a roommate, a family member, a friend, something that um, where you're being hurt either emotionally or physically. Abuse isn't always about hitting. Abuse isn't always physical. And we have the buzzwords of the day as narcissist and and gaslighting and and things like that. But it but it really is when you have someone manipulating you and and you get to the point where you're like, how did I get here? I mean, you know, you don't know you're in it until you're in it. And and so you've kind of already had a mind game played on you somewhat. Um, and that's abuse. Um, it's not okay for anyone to hurt you, um, to hurt your feelings where you can't defend yourself and you don't feel like you're safe in your own space. That's abuse. I, you know, I just uh, got back from a, a conference um, and there was a licensed psychologist, Dr. Uh, Christopher Wilson, and it really made an impact on me because he emphasized the fact, he made a comment that said, most of the abuse isn't physical. So you're yeah. not going to see bruises, but the pain, yep. you know, the, the damage is there, you know, in, mm-hmm. inside the person. And we got to, you know, as a society, we need to see who's who's in pain because of that, you know, either emotional, mental, psychological abuse, you know, happening that we're not going to see any bruises about it, but it's there because he said most of it is most of that abuse is not physical. So that that. We have to, as a society, we need to be on the lookout because there may be people beside us that are hurting, you know, because there is that psychological, mental or, or verbal abuse. And, and, you know, we need to, to learn to pick up on that. And if they shared with us, validate it. Believe yeah, that what they're exact, going yes. through is, is, is yes, true. Absolutely. Can you give maybe a couple warning signs or red flags for somebody who may not understand what emotional abuse is and like how to be able to identify it in their relationship? For me, I think a lot of times, I mean, it's, it's name calling. It, it is, this wouldn't happen if you wouldn't do this. It is, it is Mm. that, that manipulation shift. Yeah, Yeah. It's, it's always the blame shift and, um, just someone telling you you're not smart enough, you're not good enough, you don't understand, um, you're making things up. Anytime they try to invalidate something you're trying to share with them as a feeling and they tell you that what you're feeling is wrong, you're yeah. entering some scary territory there. That's that's concerning. And, and a lot of times I, I wanted to say one of the misconceptions to add to what Deanna said was is financial abuse. A lot of times they're able to manipulate with the partner being in control of the finances. You can't make it without me. You can't. I think one of the biggest warning signs I would notice with my family or friends is the, they slowly can sometimes, a lot of times start trying to separate them from their social support system or their familial support system. And slowly, you know, they're, they stop coming around. And I mean, you see a a big shift in their availability or, um, 
you know, their willingness to go do anything with you alone. And um, that's something that you can see from the outside. Another thing uh, th- this uh, psychologist mentioned, and I thought it was very interesting, is some of, of people who are, you know, uh, verbally, emotionally, uh, psychologically abused are very apologetic. Oh, did I say, I, I'm so sorry if, if I if I said it, I didn't mean it that way. They're very apologetic. They're always apologizing for how they say it, for what they said, for when they said it. You know, th- those are flags like something's going on there. But they continue to do it. But then they're doing it, you know, the next day or the next week. It's the same behaviors that they apologize profusely for. There's a fine line with passion between Mm -hmm. that. Um, Love bombing, another, you know, buzzword where, you know, they're all about you and they're apologizing and they're saying that they're horrible and that they'll change and they were having a bad day or whatever. But you start seeing that that that's a pattern of behavior. Yeah. In addition to the, Deanna, you mentioned the survivor apologizing profusely do you feel like it also happens to where they start repeating some of the words that the abuser said to them about themselves so for instance like oh yeah I'm I am worthless or maybe I am messy or I am insecure or I am irresponsible like they start to repeat and truly believe some of those things that have been said about them yes they get to the point where they believe that, yeah, you know, I'm so sorry. It's just that I'm all, I'm so clumsy. But because they've told them that they're the clumsy, you know, and, yes. and they've believed it, you know. Yeah. So for survivors who are coming into shelter, what are some barriers that you have, have seen for them getting into emergency shelters? One of the barriers is capacity. You know, there, there has been times that it pains us because we're to full capacity and somebody calls us needing that emergency shelter, and yeah. and it's it it's hard for us, you know, because we're, we're we're up to capacity and we can't take them in, and that's one of the I think one of the barriers we've had recently that it's very hard for us because the need is out there for these emergency shelters for for people to be able to to come in and and feel safe and secure, and I think that's been one of the biggest barriers we've had, you know, the being to capacity. It's great that we've been able to add on to shelter and also unfortunate that we need to. Yes. It is unfortunate because you're looking in the future and I mean, there it's not enough. And Deanna yeah. was saying earlier about as a society, we need to see, I think because of all the horrible tragedies and things that we have as a society, you know, uh, of course it's been through, you know, our history, but certainly the last, you know, five years, everything going on, it's really hardened out there. And, and people don't want to see and they don't want to know and they think it's not in their town. But this isn't just a problem for San Marcos. It's a huge problem for the San Marcos yeah. and our surrounding areas. But it's a huge problem across the Everywhere. board. Yeah. And we're, even if we don't take them in, we are desperately searching for a place for referrals for them to go somewhere. You know, we're yeah. trying to get them out of their home um, and into a safe spot. And, and so it is very disheartening when, you know, that's up and they... Whether they're single, whether they have children, no matter what, when you have to tell someone you don't have availabilities and you hear that desperation in their voice, I mean, that is gut-wrenching. And, you know, we just, as a society, a lot of people do, but we need to do better. I mean, we need to see that, um, unfortunately, there is a desperate need for this. And it's just where we are. And that's just is what it is. I mean, people need us. People need people to reach out and be, you know, that, that life jacket and and we need help being able to supply more life jackets we would like to provide a quick disclaimer 
When it comes to our emergency shelter, we make every effort to accept survivors of abuse in our service area of Hayes and Caldwell County. We know survivors of abuse often run into external barriers, such as finding affordable housing, affordable childcare, and acquiring better paying jobs, which can all make leaving an abusive relationship that much more difficult. We want survivors to know that they can always call our helpline and we will make every effort to accept them to shelter and provide additional or other resources when necessary. Okay, now back to our episode. So as a community, what can we do better as a whole in order to support survivors? I mean, it's obvious that you know, it would, it would be great if we could stop violence before it starts, which is Absolutely. what our prevention team tries to do, try to do in, edu- yeah. in educating. But so say that, you know, there are people who are experiencing violence in their homes and um, we are at capacity. Are there what can our community do to be more supportive? I think education is one mm-hmm. of them in regards yeah. to educating ourselves about the problem. Um, for example, you know, sometimes we hear a lot of, uh, you know, comments in regards to victim blaming or victim shaming, you know, maybe she, this happened to her because of something that she or he did. And, and it's not that nobody deserves to be treated in, in a violent way. Nothing, you know, deserves that. So instead of, you know, looking for reasons to blame the victim, well, let's look at reasons why, she, you know, that person is being treated the way, you know, they're, they're being treated. As a community, we can do that maybe with our, you know, loved ones instead of, well, why don't you just leave them? No, be there for them, you know, be there for them because we can be opening a door to where they'll come to us. And if we're educated, we'll be able to direct them to the right resources, you know, to the shelters, to to the community resource centers around us, you know. So education, I think, is one of the major things we need to do in regards to domestic violence. I think it would really be great. I mean, I, I think of this often, but a lot of times one of the barriers that we have are when some when people come into shelter, sometimes their credit's absolutely ruined. I mean, so them trying to find an apartment, anything like that, there is not a lot of flexibility out there to help um, people get on their feet because credit is ruined from their relationship because they've been at home or and they haven't worked. And so finding a job and so um, local resources or, or people that are small business owners here in Hayes County and surrounding areas that you know, reach out to us and let us know they're a resource when they're looking for employees. They're a resource, you know, for for apartment people or and and educating all of them to know that sometimes, you know, life isn't perfect and, and a lot of people are starting from scratch with bad credit and everything stacked against them and they really just need a break. We really just need a helping hand to give them um, a, a new start of some sense of empowerment. Getting your own apartment is a huge deal to a lot That's of these huge. people. Yeah. And, and I mean, the tears that flow and how excited we get when that falls into place um, because that is one of the number one Things that we always hear is that I didn't, I didn't qualify for the apartment. I had, we'd broken a lease, you know, six years ago. What I mean, it's just kind of ridiculous um, to to think that that is what is standing in the way of people, you know, being able to live a more joyful, peaceful life. Yeah, absolutely. I want to kind of break it down a little bit. So the information you both gave is incredible. And I feel like 
talking about abuse and relationships, domestic violence and dating violence can be a very complex topic. There's so many things that go into it. So breaking it down as far as so educating the community and people educating themselves and becoming more informed about what abuse looks like. Mm -hmm. um, how can I support somebody if I know someone who's in an abusive relationship? What are the resources out there that I can direct them to? Um, making sure that we as a community are, like you said, Deanna, supporting survivors and not blaming them, um, believing survivors and not well, why don't you just leave? Why are you still with them? Why? What did you do to make them so mad? What it? All of those things, and, and instead of having this mentality, shifting it to what they did to you is is wrong, and you deserve love, you deserve respect, you deserve support. Let's work on doing that, and let's support you in getting there. And maybe providing if they feel safe and comfortable, providing hey, like we have a spare bed in our house if you need a place to stay. If they Absolutely. don't feel, you know that. If there's not a problem with uh, being concerned that the abuser may come to their house, there needs you definitely as bystanders and people who are trying to intervene, you definitely need to feel safe as well. Absolutely. But providing some that as a support, if okay, shelter is is full, then what can we do instead? Um, and coming around these people who've experienced this, so being in a community, being educated, sharing resources, and being supportive of people, I think to it can be a challenge for people if they know the person who is the abuser. Mm -hmm. So say that it's a, a relative or will I go to church with this person or yes. they work with me or whoever it is. It, it can be a challenge for people to wrap their mind around, well, I, mm -hmm. I've i never seen him that matter. Mm -hmm. I just can't imagine that. Do you guys have any um, feedback for that for somebody who may be the person who's in that situation where, oh, this is my son or this is my business partner or something like that? I think people aren't inherently bad. And sometimes relationships are just, you're toxic together. Something about, something is often the relationship can be toxic together. So you don't really have to pick a side. It's not working for whatever reason. Um, and this is the person that needs help. And this is the person that, you know, has all of, all of the power. I think that is, uh, a big deal. A lot of times we have people come in and they're like, my daughter doesn't act like that. My son doesn't act like that. Um, unfortunately, we're human beings and we're all capable of doing some things in the in a perfect storm of circumstances, believing, assuming that they're correct and and helping them find a way out without having to blame anybody, but helping offering that room, offering that mm, space away yeah. from each other. I think it's really important. I think that was a great point, Kristen. I'm going to share uh, an example. My, my mother was very I mean, she loved us as her children, but she was very objective. And she would say, I know my kids from the door of my house and my in, inside my house from that door outside. I don't know yeah. what, what and what she was trying to make a point is sometimes with parents as teenagers, you behave very well behaved, but then you will go out there and, and you might not, you know, your behavior was not <laughs> might not be the best. It's yeah. the same thing with adults nowadays, you know, mm -hmm. behind closed doors, they can be a totally different person, mm -hmm. whether pos in a positive way or in a negative way. And and that's why it's so important for us to believe those survivors. Maybe, like you said, in church or out there, we don't see that person as being that, you know, that angry or abusive behavior that she's telling us. But we we don't see that person behind those closed doors. So we have to give the benefit of the doubt and, and believe them and, and see in what way we can possibly assist. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you both for that feedback. 
So over time, um, how do survivors' needs change? So from the moment they enter shelter, um, do their needs change from the time they enter shelter to when they're trying to leave? And what does that process look like? Um, yeah, I, of course. When they come in, it's a, it's a trauma response. Um, you, you're trying to engage them. They're sad. They're conflicted. They feel shame. They feel guilt for leaving um, the situation. Uh, they start guess, second-guessing themselves. And so they need immediate um, emotional support and to understand that, like Deanna was saying earlier about taking a breath, taking a minute and some self-care, taking a couple of days and letting reality set in because a lot of times, you know, there, we know, we all know a fight or flight mode. And a lot of times people are just in survival mode and they get here and they're looking around and there's, you know, there's people and, um, it's really hard. So just getting people to engage with us, to engage in the process of the day here at the shelter, um, is a big deal versus, you know, towards the end where we're trying to find housing and, and jobs or, or in the middle or the end, you know, um, the needs are changing there. We're starting to get some power back. We're starting to get a little bit of boom. So every step is a really scary step. Um, and until we, for when they leave here and we refer them to our counseling and resource advocacy center, um, where they get continuing, you know, support, uh, with, with counseling and advocacy. Um, it, it changes every day, just depending on where they're at, on what they, what they need from us. And, and like I said, a lot of that outside of counseling, uh, unfortunately, a lot of that falls on Deanna, um, and their minute to minute crisis, you know, that they feel, I mean, it's their crisis, it's their personal crisis. And sometimes, not getting your social security card or copies of birth certificates. Those are immediate crisis that have to be dealt with and processed out loud so that, you know, to get some perspective and, and to constantly find a way forward. I think that's what a lot of Deanna does is, is, is constantly brushing off the sidewalk so that they can see you're on the road. Yeah. Um, and there is a road and you're on it and yeah. you're moving and it may not yeah. be as fast as you want, but you're, you're making progress. So yeah. Deanna does a lot of that reminding throughout the day, all day, every day. You know, and and it's a uh, it's very rewarding when uh, you see some of these uh, survivors come in broken. You know, with their trauma, their pain. You know, what am I gonna do? What am I gonna do? And 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 they have kids, and you know, but it's so rewarding to us and to them when they when they're leaving shelter because they were able to get a, a an apartment mm-hmm. or a house and and you know and and the daycare and and they have things that they never thought they would be able to get in place and and they do it and mm-hmm. you know yeah. and, and and they come and of course they thank us you know for helping them but at the end of the day it's their power to do it you know they had the power to be able to turn their situation around and believe in themselves that they could go out and 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 get a house and and be on their own two feet and i mean it's just rewarding when we when we get to see that that you know they come in broken but then they leave here in another sense of self-confidence and and it's it's just amazing i love the way you're wording it and you're focused on empowering the survivors. In the advocacy work that we do, it's really important that we um, empower them to be able to make these decisions for themselves. And I think 
sometimes in that process for people who are supporting survivors, Melanie, you mentioned that that like national average for a survivor of abuse, um, it typically takes seven times of them leaving and returning to their abuser before they finally leave. We talked about community efforts and how do we be supportive. Um, it can be it can be a challenge from the you know for people who obviously people who are in an abusive situation, they're obviously going through a heck of a lot mm-hmm. um, and dealing with the trauma and they're constantly in survival mode and they have different barriers that are preventing them from being able to leave or get into shelter or leave shelter and feel empowered and be able to do these things and get past the financial burden of what abuse can uh, financial abuse can do. And there's all these barriers. So what, um, what, advice would you have for friends or family of people who are trying to support somebody in an abusive relationship as they're going through this process and you know there's there's the wanting to be supportive and wanting them to leave their abuser and all these things what do you guys have any advice or suggestions for those people i imagine that it is extremely frustrating um for a family member watching um, someone they love or a friend go through that and in the off and on, off and on, off and on can be overwhelming. And we get irritated because we're giving them advice. They're not listening to it. Um, And so then we're getting emotionally vested in something that they're just not capable of in that moment. So I think it's really important to keep appropriate boundaries, but be supportive because there will be that one time where it is going to be for real. And when I say the national, I mean, the statistical average of seven, that's seven times that either they leave or unfortunately a death occurs or some other horrendous act occurs. And if it takes seven times and some people is going to take 50 times, you know, it's going to, it's going to come to something one way or another, unfortunately. And, um, just to be there when that happens, um, take care of yourself when it does, but over and over, I mean, once you commit to, to helping someone and being supportive of someone in that type of situation, it's a process and educating yeah. yourself and, and learning how to provide yourself with self-care, um, while you're witnessing it, that's very hard. It's very hard to be compassionate all the time. And, which, you know, another buzz, you know, buzzword, compassion fatigue. It is a real thing. It is hard to be compassionate all the time. You get frustrated because we're all human beings and we want to fix the problem. And sometimes we can't. All we can do is, and we say we empower them. They're already powerful. They just forgot. And so yeah, when, when you're trying that. to, when you're trying to guide someone, that's it. You're just supporting them in their journey. They're doing it all. Um, you're, you're just there supporting them. So take care of yourself. Um, take care of yourself first because you can't pour from an empty cup and, um, and just be ready. It's, it's, it's a ride, but if it works out, it's, it's wonderful. And I learned 30 years ago from a really great, uh, therapist that, um, as long as one person still cares, nobody is lost. So, um, statistics are maybe you'll help with one person in your lifetime, but that, that made it all worth it. So, um. Just take care of yourself and take care of each other. Yeah. Do your best. Do your yeah. Do your best. Try hard. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we do every day. Try your hard. Do your best. <laughs> and be there for them no matter what, you know? Yeah. 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 They, they might come and, you know, tell you about the abuse and they go back to the abuser, mm-hmm. but just be there for them because you just yeah. never know when it's going to be that last time that they're going to say, you know, I'm done. Yeah. 
Yeah. I want to mention um, to Melanie, you, you mentioned it. There may be a death that occurs in that unfortunate situation. I, I want to make sure that people also understand so that sometimes there's this um, pressure that is put on survivors. Like, why don't you just leave? Mm-hmm. And I want to make sure that people understand that leaving an abusive situation is typically the most dangerous time Absolutely. for a survivor. Absolutely. Um, the rate of homicide increases during that time. The abusive partner is trying to maintain control and power and may go to great lengths to um, maintain that over somebody when they think that they are losing that power and control. So it's really important to safety plan, especially if there has been a history of violence or things have been escalating. So we provide safety planning to 24 seven. We do provide safety planning. So call us and we will try to help you come up with a plan for the best and the safest way to exit the situation. Yeah. And even as a sub- somebody who is supporting somebody who's trying to leave, you can also call and we can Absolutely. we can talk you through what that looks like as well if you're just trying to support and get some type of advice or knowledge from us too to help your your friend or your family member. Yes, yes, please call. We're here for anything, <laughs> anytime, 24-7, 365 days a year. So reach out. We want to help you. Yeah. We want to help your loved ones. We want to help your friends. So whatever we can do, um, please use... Use our resources. Use us. That's what we're here for. Is there something you would like survivors to hear or know based on your experience serving in shelter? For me, I think it's really important that they know that I I don't have an ounce of judgment. It does not matter to me how many times you've been, how many times you come back. Each time is, is my shot to help you. Um, and I want to see your face. I want to see you come back. And if, and if you're going to go back to them, don't, don't be embarrassed to tell them. I mean, you know, I'll help you pack. I I may say, are you sure, you know, and, and just to process it over there. But if they do, um, as I walk people to the door, I always say, call us anytime. If if things don't work out, call us anytime. It's not my job to judge. And I don't. And most of my peers in this agency don't. And that's why I work here. We don't, we really want the best for people and whatever that looks like. One of the things that uh, that is very important to us, like like Molly said, is that there's no judgment and and uh, the safety. You know, we're very safe. That that is one of our main priorities for them to feel and and be safe here at, at the shelter. And another thing is confidentiality because sometimes uh-huh. they come in with. You know, they're ashamed or they're even embarrassed to say maybe that they're going to be in shelter. Well, we don't share it with anybody. Everything is confidential. Anybody out there finds out that they're in shelters because they told them, not because it came up. To us, confidentiality is also a priority to keep them Uh safe. The privacy of them is, is, is important to us as well. Yeah. Is there anything else you would like to add regarding domestic violence? that it exists and it's a shame, but there's a need for us to be here. Um, and we welcome anyone that wants to support that, um, journey with us. We have a great volunteer program, which, you know, Kirsten runs, um, (laughs) but, but, um, and, and we need your help and we appreciate your help and our survivors appreciate your help. So if you feel compelled or moved to, you know, give an hour a week or, you know, an hour a month, whatever. Um, please let us know. Please let us know because we um, appreciate it and our survivors appreciate it. And we're all just trying to do the best we can. So thanks for following our podcast. 
Yeah. <laughs> the only thing I want to mention about domestic violence is that it's real. It's out there. It doesn't discriminate in regards to gender. I mm-hmm. mean, or, you know, or it can happen to anybody. Sometimes we can see somebody being successful in the workplace, but it, they can be going through it, you know. And yeah. if you feel in any way you're walking on eggshells, like they say, around your significant other or, your, you know, or, or at home in any way, that, that right there... That's your safe haven. Home should be your safe haven. And if you don't yeah. feel that, obviously there is something going on. And and that's also that they can call us just to share, hey, I don't even know if it's domestic violence. But, yeah. you know, th- that's what our line is for, too. Help people out and, and hear them out. Yeah. Well, thank you both so much for well, thank being you for a part us. of this episode. You both are yeah. incredible. You're doing amazing you. work. All everything you guys shared, I'm over here just snapping my fingers and <laughs> clapping and cheering. You both are, <laughs> you both are amazing. Thank you so much for everything you do. I know our all of our clients, the survivors who come into shelter, are better off um, being able to work with both of you. And I know our community, our listeners, um, just got a whole lot of great information that they maybe didn't know but thank you so much for being willing to share all this information with us you're both amazing but um thank you for the invite yeah of of course thanks for being willing so that's it for this episode until next time speak up speak out and be outspoken